Well, Rhiannon, we know about artificial intelligence for quite a while, and it has already been taking over many aspects of our world. Do you think artificial intelligence is taking over cancer research? I'm not actually very aware of this field, but I guess let's find out in today's episode. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Science Basement podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Eleana. And I'm your co-host, Rhiannon. And to honor the International Cancer Day on the 4th of February, we are working with ICANN on this podcast mini-series about cancer and where cancer research is going. ICANN is an exciting new research opening in Helsinki, a national flagship project aiming for discoveries for new cancer treatments. In today's episode, we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Dmitry Puchkov, who recently defended his PhD in the group of Professor Johan Lundin at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Dmitry started from computer science and specialized on image-based cancer diagnostics with machine learning and artificial intelligence, the famous AI. Being an expert on AI application to cancer research, Dmitry joins us today to share knowledge on how far we have come on the subject. Hi, Dmitry. Hello. Hello, Eliana. Hello, Rianna. And uh, greetings to the audience. Uh, welcome, welcome, Dmitry, to our episode, and welcome, Rhiannon, as your first time uh, hosting uh, for our audience uh, who are not uh, familiar with your voice yet. Uh, Rhiannon has been our editor and now is venturing into the uh, hosting, co-hosting uh, business of the podcast series. So welcome, and I, I hope you have a, a, both of you have a pleasant discussion today. Yes, thank you, Eliana. Um, it's my first time sitting behind the microphone today and I'm very excited to be here and chatting with you both about the AI use in cancer research. That's awesome. So let's maybe start uh, with the first question um, and probably the best way to start the interview is by first introducing what artificial intelligence is. So maybe Dimitri, um, based on your knowledge and experience, you can um, enlighten us on, on the topic. <laughs> right, I, I can try. So I think when these days people talk about AI or deep learning, most often they refer to this specific type of machine learning models that are called uh, neural networks. And uh, it's. I need to say that it's interestingly not uh, a very modern thing per se. So basically, already back in 1950s, it was um, Frank Rosenblatt who basically proposed this idea of uh, like an artificial neuron, which is supposed to be um, like a mathematical abstraction that mimics how uh, neurons in human brain work. And uh, then these simple computational units, they are um, assembled together to form a neural network that can um, address basically multiple uh, tasks in various domains. And these days we sort of see reincarnation of this uh, field in the form of deep learning. 
so now we have this uh, technology that, as I understand, has been existing for uh, quite a long while now, as you said. Um, and um, um, the question I would like to ask is, like, how is this artificial intelligence used in cancer research, and in particular within ICANN and, and the group uh, you do your research for? I think the big part of... Um... Uh, of the research uh, in medicine is happening in the computer vision field. So there are now multiple examples in medicine like microbiology, ophthalmology, um, uh, radiology, and of course, pathology, where uh, machine learning and AI has been successfully applied to, to, to solve different tasks. So in our group, uh, where I did my PhD, we specifically focused on um, uh, computational pathology, where we basically apply AI to analyze uh, digitized uh, tumor samples uh, from, from cancer patients. So essentially, you collect images of the cancer cells, you digitize them, and then you analyze them. And what do you uh, anticipate to learn from, from that? So typically, a patient that is uh, sort of a, uh, suspected for cancer uh, would undergo a about a biopsy, for example, to acquire a tissue material, a, a tissue sample, then this sample is uh, uh, prepared in a certain way that is, it is fixed in a par paraffin block, then it's like sliced, uh, attached on the microscopic glass slide, then it's stained. Uh, and then uh, there is a specialist, uh, like a medical specialist called pathologist that would look at the tissue specimen uh, using a microscope and uh, the aim of this uh, tissue evaluation is to uh, basically specify the diagnosis uh, or, or of the cancer. So what we do is we can uh, essentially take this glass slide, put it in a scanner, which is like a camera uh, or a microscope equipped with a camera that uh, uh, acquires a digital image of the sample for us. And then we can use this um, data to, to perform all sorts of analysis. For example, as you said, we can detect certain uh, like cell types, we can detect uh, cancer cells, uh, uh, how they are located or distributed on this, uh, in this tissue sample. We can, uh, for example, directly predict patient outcome and um, using this data. And that was um, something that I basically focused on during my PhD. Thanks, Dimitri, that's very interesting. Um, I have a, a background in cancer research, but much more on the cell basis and kind of the treatments, development of treatments. So I was, I was wondering uh, what you've described there is much uh, more on the diagnostic side. How does this link in with the possibility to predict treatments uh, as they in the medical uh, side of things, they do overlap a lot? Uh, right. So the, of course, the ultimate goal of the applied cancer research, I would say, is not only to like understand uh, how cancer develops and, uh, and the biology behind it, but also figure out how to identify best possible treatment for this particular uh, patient so that um, it is possible to cure the disease and at the same time minimize the side effects of the, of the uh, medications. Um, one approach here is to, for example, when we talk about outcome prediction, we are basically looking uh, whether we can stratify the patients based on risk uh, better. Can we identify those that are under high risk or maybe under lower risk? And then this information then can be further used to, to make decisions in, in clinics, for example. 
So, so far, Dima, we talked a little bit about the cancer diagnostics and we linked it a little bit uh, with the cancer treatment with the question by Rhiannon. But I was curious, what other methods are there in cancer diagnostics here in Finland and maybe how AI uh, application differs a bit from the other methods? Yeah, so maybe I can briefly mention about uh, another direction, which is, of course, very much related to what I said, but uh, it's like a separate big project that's going on in uh, in Johan's research group, also in collaboration with um, uh, Karolinska Institute from Sweden. And um, the context here is to, well, it's called mobile microscopy. Uh, and the idea here is to build an infrastructure that can be used uh, for diagnostics in um, poor resource settings, for example, in African countries where um, they have limited access to high-end expensive equipment, and uh, which is even probably more important, they have a uh, lack of uh, trained specialists, for example, pathologists that would uh, evaluate tissue specimens. Um, so the idea of that project is to build an infrastructure that would allow to um, acquire uh, patient samples on a site um, in the hospital, for example, in Kenya. Uh, then uh, the sample would be prepared, uh, digitized, and then uh, it can be sent, for example, uh, through the internet here to Helsinki, Finland, where a pathologist in Finland would um, evaluate the, uh, the sample and perform a diagnosis and then link it back to, um, to Kenya, for example. And in that context, of course, AI has like a lot of potential to facilitate the procedure of uh, a sample evaluation and, and diagnostics. Um, that's a very interesting application for uh, AI and you can clearly see the potential of uh, involving AI in cancer research. Um, I was wondering in general, as I understand um, the field of AI is an ever-changing field, kind of how far within the research have we come with the AI applications in cancer research? I think we, I would say, in my opinion, that there's been a lot of progress, especially over the last decade, uh, when uh, uh, convolutional neural networks and AI techniques became basically one of the major tools in, uh, in these kind of applications. I would say that there are advances not only on the methodological or algorithmic side uh, behind the technology, but also uh, there's been a lot of advances in terms of um, data aggregation. So um, the size of the data sets that are used to, to train the models, uh, they grow um, pretty rapidly. And even though this is still a, probably one of those aspects that are like limiting the capacity of the technology uh, to some extent, in my opinion, but uh, there's been a good progress and in that direction. Another uh, important thing that has happened maybe over the last decade is the availability to the hardware. So you all know that we need this uh, GPUs or graphic processing units to train AI. So uh, they they become became much more advanced and now uh, Basically, this is like a something must have to to go further with AI. Uh, you mentioned there, Dimitri, about um, some training sets for uh, the use of AI and development of AI. For those who um, kind of like me who aren't so familiar with the use of AI, could you explain a bit more about uh, how the training sets work and also how specifically in cancer this this works? 
I would say that maybe 80% or even more of the machine learning models or AI models that are currently used uh, in, for example, cancer diagnostics, those are so-called uh, supervised um, methods, meaning that in order to train an algorithm, we need to have uh, access to a labeled annotated data set. Um, for example, just like we train models to differentiate cats and dogs from the pictures, uh, we also can train a model to differentiate cancer versus non-cancer. But in this case, uh, we need a person uh, who knows uh, what is cancer and what is not. Uh, so it requires domain knowledge. And on top of that, it is a very laborious process typically to annotate the data. For example, if again, we want to detect certain type of cells, maybe in the like conventional scenario, someone, a specialist would need to sit and sort of uh, draw the boundaries of the, of the cells across multiple samples, and then we can use this information to train the models. So, Dmitry, you were now uh, mentioning about the um, uh, uh, testing samples and labeling the data, that you have a human who uh, goes through uh, many images of a sample and tries to label the cells, and you use that as um, a training uh, sample for the AI. But um, I am a little bit familiar with AI from uh, attending some lectures here and there, and I know that you need a sample for training and a sample for testing. And I was wondering, um, how does it work with the AI in cancer research where you have a human uh, labeling the data and you train the AI based on that, do you have like a human error that is being transferred in, in the data? Uh, so, Eliana, I think you mentioned two like different aspects. Uh, so first, uh, you were very correctly referring to this problem of uh, variability uh, related to the data labeling. Uh, and uh, this is a sort of an issue, not only in cancer diagnostics and not only in computer vision, but it is also like uh, there is similar um, like obstacles in other, in other domains as well. There are like multiple ways how this can be addressed, but maybe I'll mention one again, referring to my work uh, during my PhD at Johans Group, where we uh, trained AI uh, using um, patient outcome data or patient survival data. Uh, so this is approach that allows us to not only reduce a human labor, uh, but also um, make the endpoint that we want to predict using AI more objective, if, if I can say so. Basically, uh, if we use the retrospective data or uh, retrospective patient cohorts that um, we know for every single patient, uh, their diagnosis, uh, how they were treated and how long they lived. So they've been followed up for like tens of years. And then we can use the data to, to train the models, right? So this is uh, like one way to, to, to address that issue. Uh, of course, uh, similarly, uh, if we have access to a comprehensive set of, uh, say, patient information where we would know uh, uh, kind of a objective endpoints about how patients uh, respond to treatments. Uh, we would be able to train uh, AI to directly predict patient response, like for each particular patient, depending on his or her uh, uh, like individual aspects of the disease. Then you also mentioned that we typically use the uh, 
kind of a training test and validation splits. So the notion here is that we, we use only part of the data to, to train an algorithm that is called the training set. But in order to uh, make sure that uh, the algorithm performs correctly on an unseen data, we need to still keep some holdout set and use it as like sort of a validation. And that brings us to the very sort of an important uh, aspect, in my opinion, which um, I can maybe try to formulate in one sentence. So rigorous validation, in my opinion, of, of these models is something that is uh, maybe not stopping, but sort of a slowing down the process of bringing AI uh, to like real life uh, from, from the labs. Okay, thanks. That's very... Um very clear, I think, to me and very interesting. So just following on from that last point that you summarized there, how can, to use the scientific notion, how with AI do you think we can go, therefore, from bench to bedside? How can we implement the AI uh, in the kind of everyday patient care? Yes, thanks. I, that's, that's a very important um, question. Uh, so as I said, uh, the sizes of the data set, that data sets that we use to train uh, AI models in different domains, they grow, which means that we can allow for like uh, more accurate, more generalizable models. But still, uh, uh, as of yet, I would say uh, a lot of um, papers that publish their studies, their observations, there, uh, most often they stick to a single data set or maybe a couple data sets that they use to uh, sort of report the findings. And uh, in my opinion, this validation of the AI algorithms, it has to be scaled in such a way that we can incorporate as much external data as possible from different um, uh, medical institutions, from different device vendors, and so on and so forth, to make sure that uh, uh, what we see, uh, the results that we see, they are actually valid. You said there's something interesting also in the previous question, but also now, because when we talk about personalized cancer care, we are thinking about uh, how to focus on one patient. And from the previous episodes we did with ICANN, my understanding is that it's not only about a patient, is uh, one patient is different from another, but also one cancer is different from another. And therefore, um, I, I can understand that uh, you have a data limitation because not only of lack of availability of data, but also because its case is unique and each uh, case uh, might have like uh, some unique aspects. And I was wondering, can that impede with the AI application? So um, are there some standards, uh, some specific characteristics you look in the cancer cells, which you train the AI code to identify, and therefore you can apply the same knowledge or the same uh, trained code to different people and different cancer types? Or do you have to retrain uh, based on cancer type or based on patient? H how does that work? Yeah, uh, that, that's right. So cancer is a uh, very heterogeneous disease. And even if we take, for example, uh, I don't know, breast cancer, uh, it has multiple uh, subtypes uh, uh, based on, for example, uh, molecular profiles. And uh, what we try to achieve here is we try to uh, sort of a reduce the variability in a sense that, of course, we, we uh, would 
take a specific cancer type. We don't blend up, for example, uh, different type of solid tumors in one study, right? So we try to uh, formulate the questions that we want to address like very narrow. But at the same time, uh, we need to cover the entire variability of possible uh, variations that might happen, uh, for example, in the morphology of tumors, because we have been mostly talking about them uh, like uh, tissue samples here. So we, we need to make sure that we co cover entire uh, like variability of that uh, when we uh, train our models. And in that sense, uh, there is a like constant lack of, uh, of of data. So the typical question is like, how many samples do you need to train to train an algorithm? And uh, the only answer is to uh, as much as possible to 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 cover as much variation as we can. We've been discussing, I guess, I would summarize a lot of the limitations or things to be aware of when implementing uh, AI in cancer research. And I just kind of wanted to bring it back to um, the work you mentioned in kind of developing countries and how AI can help uh, there and help really uh, increase the cancer diagnostics and treatments where maybe there's not so many specialists. Um, in terms of this, in relation to data sets, like do you need to kind of use data sets from those developing countries or is, or is it still possible to train the model based on uh, data sets from say, the ones you have available, say, for example, from Finland? Uh, right, so we have uh, like a luxury to have access uh, to uh, quite comprehensive patient series here in Finland and specifically in the Meilahti campus. And uh, this is uh, what we have been using mostly to, to train the algorithm so far. And of course, what we want to do is, for example, to, to take the algorithm to uh, go to Kenya, to the hospital, uh, digitize, acquire a sample, digitize it, and run our models and see how they perform. So this is something that has to be done more broadly, in my opinion. Uh, also, uh, maybe to uh, a step back a little bit and to continue on the topic of uh, like challenges and limitations, I've talked quite long about the like more maybe technical side, uh, technical challenges that we have related to validation of the models. But we need to remember that uh, even, for example, if we have like a perfect algorithm, if we validated that it works, you, you cannot just simply come and say, here is my fancy AI, let's just use it for diagnostics. So that's also something that is a big thing that has to be addressed to, to move AI like closer to, to the real life. Another aspect which is also related to that is uh, um, sometimes you can hear this concept that AI is trying to replace a medical doctor. So AI is going to make a diagnosis. And uh, this is definitely not the way where it goes. Um, so I would say uh, here we are talking more about how can AI supplement or help or reduce uh, certain routine tasks that are, for example, performed by pathologists in uh, pathological labs. Um, and sometimes there is a mindset of uh, uh, like certain people may be a little bit like reluctant towards uh, this uh, fancy digital technology. So they need to make sure that uh, I know what it means, what I see from your AI, and I know how to use it to a sort of a aid in my decision-making related to, to patient treatment, for example. I like both the question, uh, Rhiannon's study, because it highlights a very known problem that has affected uh, medical research, and that is uh, data bias. 
because sometimes studies for medication or for treatments were performed um, on men, more precisely white male, and therefore women uh, would uh, have suffered, I'll put that in quotes, not really suffered, but it might have a more stronger effect on women, some treatment that was used. And the same goes of people from different uh, racial backgrounds because um, um, we are all humans, but we have differences within. So uh, it, I like the question from Rihanna because she touched that if we develop an AI system based on European data, is that sufficient to apply it to uh, a sample that comes from uh, a country from a different continent? Um, and at the same time, I like the direction uh, you took your answer, Dimitri, because you you highlighted the importance of um, um, using the technology as a support to uh, humans and not as a replacement for the human labor. And it's like an extra validation step or confirmation step that uh, we are on the right path for the treatment. But it's important to highlight that we still need a human uh, to um, moderate or oversee the, the whole process. Yes, definitely, yeah. But, but touching now, because um, we mentioned like there is um, the concept of uh, getting the samples from Kenya and I understand um, uh, there has been some uh, difficulties in implementing all the technologies um, in, in developed versus uh, developing countries. Um, so um, how can you overcome this um, with this project with Kenya? Uh I think when we talk about uh, like availability of this infrastructure or um, so in that context, it's maybe less about AI, uh, like invading the digital infrastructure, but it's more about um, the infrastructure that has to be built in this pool resource setting. Maybe I can add that, uh, for example, having this infrastructure, uh, it, it creates um, this sort of a, not the playground, but the practical sort of a aspect where AI can be like really used to, to facilitate the uh, diagnostics in, in, in those countries. Uh, some, uh, this is exactly the way how it should be validated, in my opinion. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. And uh, I think all the points you've touched on there are uh, really show the, well, from the limitations to the implementation. Um, and I was just wondering, moving on, I guess, from that, topic kind of what do you think are the future future possibilities of AI and cancer research so I guess it's quite an open-ended question but in your opinion where do you think the the field is going? Uh, I see that there will be uh, quite a lot of advances uh, on the methodological side because there is a huge amount of research that happens in in the AI field more like on the maybe theoretical side but even with the current state of uh, uh, methods and AI techniques, I would say that uh, we can still go quite a lot further. For example, again, getting back to, to like the limited uh, data sources that we have, uh, I see that uh, the data sets will grow. Uh, our models will become more complex and uh, there is still a lot of room for that. So this is something that I see will be happening in maybe next uh, three to five and maybe even to 10 years. So essentially, there is a lot we have to anticipate uh, from AI application in cancer research in the foreseeable future. 
um, that makes it overall very hopeful. Maybe one thing I would like to ask is because we talked about the technical aspects of AI application in cancer research. We talked about limitations, but also the advantages. But at the same time, we didn't touch at all a big issue that comes in any any research field, and that is the ethical constraints. So as, as I understand, um, there will be ethical constraints, but also liberties uh, when it comes to applying AI in medical research and treatment. So in based on, on your experience, how does that affect your research and what are the ethical constraints you, you're most likely to deal with um, since you are dealing with uh, human data? Yeah, thanks. You're right. Um, this is... Uh... Yeah, this is also something that, in my opinion, has to be maybe a bit uh, broadly uh, discussed. Uh, I see that uh, there is part of uh, ethical aspects that are maybe not rela- related directly to AI, but rather related to uh, like medical research in general, where we use human samples. So we're basically dealing with uh, private information, not only the tissue material, but we also need to know a lot of other clinical parameters from uh, from an individual. And this is something that, uh, I mean, there has to be a consent in place. We need to apply for uh, like approvals to be able to use this data for research purposes. So uh, this is one part of it. And this is something that it, that is like routinely done when we, when we use pa- patient samples for our research. Another part related to uh, AI is maybe we talk about we that it is not possible to transfer the data, for example, from one side to another side. Uh, that requires, or like from one machine to another machine, from your mobile device to a certain server, right? Because because of the legislation, uh, so that enforces certain constraints to how these AI models are built, uh, and uh, this is a very big uh, sort of a direction of research within the AI that is called federated learning. So uh, again, I'm not expert in that, but you can Google the term and and read a bit more about how it goes. So I think there will be also uh, a lot of uh, advances in the nearest future because it's again, not only inherent to uh, medical diagnostics, but to pretty much any, any other field. So if I understand right, this is related to safely transfer the data of someone uh, from one machine to another and ensure that privacy is maintained and no leaking of data and vital uh, medical information is uh, gone. Yeah, definitely. That's that's one thing. But even on top of that, sometimes it's not even uh, possible to transfer the data Uh for whatever reasons, uh, whether it's legislation or maybe it's just technically impossible to, you know, transfer large volumes of, of data, then we need to build the models or we need to build the technology in such a way so that we can train an algorithm without transferring the data. And this is, well, I refer to, the, to this as a federated learning. And maybe I can also ask something else, because I remember in the first episode we recorded with Professor Tommy Makela, um, he mentioned about the importance of the people uh, participating actively uh, in the uh, research in a sense of, I am a cancer patient and I donate a sample to a hospital somewhere. And then it's important to be given the opportunity to decide uh, what happens to my sample. And there are some actions that are being taken into that. And I believe that this could help 
um, with the AI research, because if more people are willing to uh, donate uh, their sample, not only for uh, uh, finding what's the best treatment for them, but also for the research itself, that would be um, a very important uh, for uh, something like AI application where you need a large data set. So do you know if there has been already some efforts in that direction? Uh, right, yes, there has been uh, quite a lot of effort into building all sorts of data lakes uh, that would aggregate together uh, data and then made it make it available uh, for, uh, for scientists and for researchers to, uh, to do the research. And I think one of the big parts of the ICON project is, I think it's actually called ICON Data Lake, where the purpose is exactly what you described to uh, sort of uh, accumulate uh, patient information in one place such that it's secure, such that uh, it is easily accessible by researchers to, to be able to, to do the work. And since uh, most of the science today is data-driven, especially when we talk about uh, applied research in, in medicine, so data is basically behind uh, all findings and advances. Okay, so we had a very interesting conversation with Dmitri and Rhiannon today, but our time is running out. So maybe uh, we can uh, close this episode uh, with this question. So if uh, you wanted our audience to take uh, one or two key messages away with them from today's episodes, what would those be? I don't know, those would be that... Uh, science is amazing. It's not only important, but it's actually cool and very interesting. Technology is something that brings this, this planet further, hopefully further. <laughs> and when they blend together in this kind of uh, interdisciplinary research that we do on the intersection of um, medicine, uh, um, AI and biology, and uh, th this is beautiful. So I would just say uh, thank you to the Science Basement, to for uh, science communication, for making these episodes, for popularizing science. And uh, it was a pleasure to, uh, to be with you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to, to talk to you today. And I, I hope, uh, uh, Rhiannon, uh, you also had a nice uh, first uh, uh, hosting experience. Yes, it was very interesting to talk to you, uh, Dimitri, and learn all about the use of AI in, in cancer research for this ICANN uh, cancer episode. So thank you very much for your time and your knowledge. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and, and thank you uh, to our audience uh, for uh, sticking with us. And uh, we hope that uh, today uh, you learned a thing or two about AI application in cancer research like, like we did and until next time, have fun. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.